Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. So you married another Christian and set out on what seemed to you the perfect trajectory for a Christian marriage, particularly focused on mission and community. And several years into that, when life seemed very stable and predictable perhaps to some degree your husband decided he didn't believe anymore what happened next yeah so I had been raised in a tradition that really centered on um, this idea of marriage being only successful if both partners shared a faith in God um, that that was the foundation on which any successful relationship needed to be based and specifically a married a marriage relationship so when <clears throat> my husband you know, decided that he, he was done. He couldn't participate in the life of the church anymore. He wasn't a Christian. I felt kind of sucker punched. You know, I felt like I didn't know what to do next because the entire um, basis on which we had dated and gotten married was centered on this common faith. So I really was left reeling in those first, in that first year in particular of just searching for models of, well, what, what can this look like? Like, you know, the Bible talks about being unequally yoked and I looked for books that might be able to help me um, understand my situation. And they just all seemed so tragic. You know, it was just like, this was reinforcing this narrative that this was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. And I did, I, I went through a period of grief, of grieving, of um, having to reckon with a dream or an idea of what I thought life was going to be like and what I thought God had called me to and had blessed, you know, in a particular way. And so, yeah, there was a lot of grief that um, I had to acknowledge and process. And yet in and through that, realizing that some of the, some of the ideas that I've been given about marriage and about relationships were not Oh, necessarily the truest, um, that there actually is ways for us to be in community and relationship and even married to people who think and believe very differently than we do. It's been, it's been I think, about seven years now since Josh left the church. So the, the way that I feel now versus the way that I felt then is very different because I've had a lot of time um, to kind of process through those feelings and also to kind of reclaim uh, a way of relating across religious conditions, ac across um, different faiths that I think still reflects God's goodness, um, still reflects, you know, the core tenets of what I think it means to be a Christian. Spiritual singleness is a theme that you work out throughout the book. What form did that take and where have you ended up? Yeah, so in the book, I tell the story of a one year of my life um, of kind of continuing to reckon with this grief and trying to understand, so now what? What do I do now? How do I live a Christian life when my husband isn't a Christian anymore? Um, and so I, this term spiritual singleness kind of comes to me during a walk in the woods, and, I, and I'm not sure if it's from God or if it's something that just kind of surfaced in my subconscious. But it was a really helpful term for me because it kind of named the experience that I was going through where I was still married, still happily married, still very much committed and in love with my husband. And yet 
there was this loneliness that I was experiencing of, well, now, you know, who do I pray with and how do I understand my vision for life or what God might be calling me to in and through this, this relationship that looks very differently than I thought it would. So spiritual singleness was, was helpful for me in that regard. I stumbled upon this monastic community in my neighborhood, um, a group of Catholic sisters who, um, you know, are celibate. They take a lifelong vow to um, be single. And I was just really attracted to them, to their liturgy, to the, their lifestyle, to the way that they were uh, very present to people in the neighborhood through their ministry. And I wondered too, if there was something that I shared with them because they had committed to this uh, singleness and I was feeling very much spiritually single. So I decided to join a year long kind of spiritual formation program that they were offering at the monastery to kind of teach people about their form of spirituality, which is Salesian based on St. Francis de Sales and St. Jane de Chantal, the founders of the order, the visitation order. I, I'm kind of following this idea of spiritual singleness, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that by the end of the story, it becomes very clear that the Catholic sisters do not really like that term at all. They don't identify it with it themselves. They don't consider themselves spiritually single in the way that I considered myself spiritually single. And I think that points to this kind of discovery of, you know, none of us can live a Christian faith on our own. Like there is a body of Christ that to which, you know, we all belong and you do, everyone has their own individual, you know, faith and relationship with God. There's no denying that, <clears throat> but you can't live out faith apart from other people. Um, we need each other. We need to, you know, be reading scripture in community and praying with each other and encouraging one another. And that's really what um, the visitation charism is all about. It's about this relationality and mutuality as um, shown in the story between you know, Mary and Elizabeth, which is the visitation story about you know, encouraging and um, uplifting other people. And I really experienced that with the Catholic sisters. You've stayed married and describe an ongoing renegotiation in effect. What have you discovered about mixed faith marriage? Yeah, so what I've learned about mixed faith marriage is, yeah, that it's not a tragedy. It is a vehicle through which God can move. I think people have different experiences if they are choosing to be in an interfaith marriage versus my experience where suddenly, you know, several years after a wedding, you know, someone changes dramatically. Yet I think that that's just a truth about marriage in general is that, you know, there's no guarantees that the person that you choose to marry is going to stay the same. We all change over time. Sometimes these changes are good and sometimes these changes are not good. And in our case, you know, it was very hard that Josh walked away from the church, yet we had enough of the other pieces there for us to make it work. But I have, you know, I have friends and people who I know who've experienced similar changes where you know, they weren't able to stay married. And I, and I think that it's really individual, right? That um, everyone's experience is different. So I would never want someone to read my story and think, oh, well, this is, you know, the only way that, or, you know, if you have this extent to you, then, you know, separation or another outcome isn't a possibility. Because I think it definitely can be, especially if, you know, the, each person doesn't respect the other person's faith or if, or is any kind of abuse, you know, there's, there's so many reasons why marriages don't work out. Um, but I just wanted to add my story because I think there just isn't a whole lot of hopeful stories out there that 
do show that it is possible um, to continue to stay married and not just to be married to stay married, but because, you know, this is actually can be a beautiful dynamic in a relationship if you're willing to communicate, if you're willing to respect one another, if you're willing to give each other space to just have your own individual spiritual life, um, to let your love be bigger than um, a set of spiritual conditions or religious conditions. Um, so yeah, I guess I've learned that mixed faith marriage isn't easy. Um, Sunday mornings are still hard in our family. Um, and then, you know, grief will still sometimes arise. You know, yeah, God, God is still good, I think, um, and has been good to us despite these differences. And I think that it's possible to still have a loving, healthy relationship. Um, even if you believe completely different things about about God and spirituality. And I think it's only worked because of our mutual respect for each other. We were able to come to a decision about how we wanted to raise our kids, you know, so that's, that's a huge one um, where I'm, I'm taking the kids to church and, you know, we're still giving them that spiritual formation. And we were, you know, I was able to you know, give Josh the space to be like, I'm not going to pressure him to come to church. I'm not going to try to convert him. You know, I'm going to just respect where he's at. So I think if those elements weren't in place, I think it can be a really, really hard dynamic in a relationship. And then I've gotten to meet lots of other couples who are, you know, in this kind of, you know, similar mixed faith marriage and realize that there's, you know, 40% of marriages now, at least in the U.S., are, um, interfaith. And this is just a dy dynamic that a lot of people are working through in their relationships and, are, and a lot of people are doing it well. So yeah, I, I've definitely learned a lot. Yeah, I think you're speaking into something very current. Um, Christianity seems to have quite regular panics about particularly the smaller numbers of men in the faith, uh, but research suggests that this isn't a unique situation and men tend to stay in faiths where there's a social expectation that they will be present and taking part. Uh, whether they have um, a personal belief or not so I think there's lots of elements that are starting to come to the fore now that you're speaking into even through your personal experience even if it's not exactly the same you talk about not having found an interfaith balance at home in the book and you include some stories where you end up cringing over bible verses about judgment and feel like a fraud which does sound quite awkward. Uh, what is your ideal for your Christian agnostic family? What would you say it looks like if it was to work in the best um, way for you? I mean, I don't think there's any like magic formula. You know, I think the reality is that families are messy and complicated and people are people. So, you know, um, I don't know if this ever looks perfect. Um, I do think that what I was saying earlier about needing to have a grounding in mutual respect um, and loving what the other person loves, you know, that that's another piece of it for us is that um, I have to be willing to understand and appreciate the things that Josh loves. And he has to be willing to understand and appreciate the things that I love, even if he doesn't participate in them. So I think it's just this generous sort of orientation to one another. Um, you know, so in my case, yeah, if, if the Advent readings are all about judgment and about burning in hell or, you know, apocalyptic kind of end of the world type things that, you know, speak specifically about unbelievers, you know, if I'm going to be reading those scriptures during our shared family practice, you know, is that, is that something that's really edifying for anyone? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would say not. <laughs> and in, in Josh's case, you know, maybe 
he has some real serious critiques of the church and is, thinks certain you know pieces of theology are you know laughable maybe that's his opinion but is he gonna say that in front of me you know we have to find ways of communicating that honor that that this is something that this other that our partner values and loves and so it's not that we can't have conversation or talk about thorny topics but it is just being respectful i guess of each other's individual understandings and beliefs and saying you know i'm happy that this is something that gives you life i'm happy this is something that you know is good for you and i think as a christian there's a lot of um at least in the traditions that i was raised in you know there can be a lot of pressure to be then oh well then i have to bring you know my my husband to christ or i need to pray him back to faith and i think that that pressure can be um, can kind of backfire because then you're not being you're not able to kind of take your hands off your partner and trust that god is still good and that god still loves them and that you know god can find a way where, where there's no way right and it's not up to me to be the one to change anyone else's mind about faith i just have to live as faithfully as i can in the calling and in the place that where i am and that's all any of us can do um but yeah there's conflict that comes up and i just have to say you know counseling is great <laughs> going to see a marriage counselor is wonderful um again like i know couples where you know it just didn't work it, this is a hard dynamic to navigate especially if you have if you don't have that mutual respect in place so it's tricky it's it can be hard but i think there can also be a lot of joy in realizing, hey, our love can be big enough for this to, to, to navigate this dynamic. And I don't have to buy into this narrative that there is no good relationship except for the one that's, you know, based in a mutual faith. Finding God in nature has seemed to be key for you and perhaps a reflection of your walking through unfamiliar landscapes in your life. You use the phrase in the book, there is no trail here when you're pushing through woodland what does that look like day by day is nature still a key part of your spirituality would you say yeah so one of the big things that um so you know josh and i's story is very much framed around okay he left the church now what right that's kind of been one of the big questions for us but i think now that there's been some time that's passed you know i'm let it's we've less focused on that and more on okay well then who are we and what are we building together and one of the things that we've both shared from the beginning of our relationship is the love for nature for being outside we, we both um just appreciate the beauty we love hiking we love being out in the woods and bringing our kids out into the woods and so i think when you're in a mixed faith relationship in particular finding the things that you do have in common um, because it can be hard when you're not sharing certain rituals and what have you, but really focusing on those things that you do share and, and spending time <clears throat> doing those things can be really helpful to just add, you know, common connection and common experience that everyone can enjoy and participate in. And so for our family, you know, every weekend we go for a hike usually um, with our kids. Um, we have, some really great park systems really close to us and um, my husband's an athlete so you know going we go on family bike rides we um, go camping we just try to find ways to be outside together and i find that, that those shared experiences which you know i think are very spiritual like the transcendent you can't help but think about who created this world and what 
it means for us to be alive. I think when you're out in the woods and you see a massive old tree that's been there for who knows how long, um, or when you see, you know, a beautiful, just a beautiful view or the changing seasons right now in Minnesota, it's just gorgeous with all the leaves changing. So yeah, I think it's a very important part of what makes our relationship work. You use the term Moscow spirituality to describe your experience of faith since things changed. What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I was listening to the radio um, a couple years ago, and the radio show talked about how during the month of December, there had been only, I think it was six minutes of sunlight recorded for the entire month. So you think about gray skies and think about living day in, day out with just gray, 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 and how you just feel that in your body, right? When you have not seen the sun. And then when the sun does break out and you feel those rays hit your face, it's like, oh, it's still there. Oh, oh, I, you know, the world isn't just this one monochrome color. Oh, there's, this month will someday end and someday, you know, there'll be a, a June or July where the sun is coming through. Um, so I use this as a metaphor because my faith felt and has felt at times like a long gray month where there just is no sun to be found. And you wonder, you know, is the sun still there? Um, is God still good? Is there any point to all of this? And, you know, my husband's deconversion um, was simultaneous with my own kind of faith crisis of, did I still want to be a Christian? Now that he had walked away from the church, it would be so much easier for me to walk away too, because then at least we could share, you know, not being Christians together and find something else maybe that we believed in or other ways of understanding the world. And yet there was something that just had its tenter hooks in me. God had its tenter hooks in me. And I knew I wanted, I knew that the experiences that I had had with God in my life were true. I wanted to hold on to my faith. And yet when it's gray, it can be hard to trust. It can be hard to keep going. You get depressed, you get lonely, you get kind of caught in this feeling of um, uncertainty that can just stretch on and on. And so I talk about when the sun breaks through, you know, those are the moments when you're reminded, okay, this, this, I can keep going. Um, and so for me, as someone who was raised in the Protestant church, you know, was baptized Presbyterian, um, went to evangelical Bible camp, went to an evangelical college, ended up going to different churches afterwards, I kind of felt like I was searching always for those rays of sunshine. Where was the light breaking through? Um, and so I kind of ask this question in the book of, you know, as a Protestant who then is suddenly hanging out with a bunch of Catholic sisters, is this okay that I'm kind of hopping around a little bit between denominations within the Christian faith? Um, does this mean that I'm not like stable enough to stay within one denomination and dig down deep into that tradition? And I think I come to the understanding or rationalization, maybe, I don't know how you want to frame it, that I think that God, you know, reveals God's self in our traditions, and it's not just one denomination that, you know, shows God's light, right? And so sometimes when you're in a month of gray skies, you know, if you go seek out a Catholic prayer book for the first time, or you decide to sit in a Quaker meeting, or you say, hey, I want to try centering prayer, you know, sometimes those impulses or desires to go and look in other traditions for God are because we are just so desperate for that light to break through the dark, the darkness. Um, and so that's part of the, the reason why I decided to hang out with Catholic sisters, even though I'm 
still very much a Protestant and I attend a Baptist church. Um, but because I felt, I really felt God's presence um, when I was with them. Just to expand a little on the nuns, you've talked in the book about how you learned lessons from their pattern of life. Uh, and one of the phrases you use that there was wisdom baked into the structure that, and that weathers the challenges of uh, committed community life and all of the upheaval that can come with that. What are the other things that you've noticed from being around them? Oh, well, the, the Catholic sisters that I know, there's just such a joy in, in presence when you're with them. You know, they're not, they're fully present to whoever they're with. Um, and I think it, part of this is because this particular order, the visitation order, really does value relationships and um, mutuality as being one of their core tenets. And so th this particular group of sisters is in an urban neighborhood where there's, you know, high poverty rate. So lots of people are coming and knocking on their door um, because they need help, you know, getting a bus token or a gift card for, you know, groceries or whatever it might be. And every person who comes to the door is greeted as Christ. You know, Jesus has come to our door. Like that is the countenance and the joy in which the sisters interact with people. And, you know, they're human. So it's not like every interaction, they're not perfect that, you know, not every interaction is exactly the same, I'm sure. And yet resoundingly so whenever I'm with them, I get this sense of just, you know, this person is really listening to me and really present to me. And I think that that's such a gift to people. Like we all need relationships and we all need people around us who are open and who, um, yeah, just have the other's best interests at heart. And I don't think that that just happens though. I think that in order to have that orientation of being really, really present to someone else, um, you know, the sisters, they pray the liturgy of the hour. So four times a day, they're coming together to read the scriptures. Um, they each take a personal retreat once a year for 10 days where they're in silence and they, you know, many of them have the spiritual director. It's not like this just happens because they decided to become nuns. It's, it's really because there's time in which they're available to the community and times in which they retreat and really tend to both their community life and to their individual life because they're truly a contemplative order. Um, so, you know, their major focus is really prayer. Um, they also have a ministry to the neighborhood, but that isn't their primary orientation. Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, I don't know if I've been able to manage uh, that balance because I'm not a Catholic sister. I'm married. I've got kids. My life is crazy. You know, I'm trying to work and homeschool during the, this pandemic. So I feel like I'm often lacking in the patient's area or lacking in the being present to the people around me. Um, and yet when I'm with them and when I get to pray with them, um, I think I, get, I feel like my roots go a little bit deeper. Um, I get a little bit more grounded, a little bit more um, connected. And that helps me remember I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Um, and there's, and the sisters are praying for me and I can pray for them and I can join them um, in their ministry of being present to the people around me. So yeah, I really, I love them. <laughs> Many of the women that you have been inspired by that you describe in the book going back over centuries in some cases, uh, have led very low profile lives and their inspiration to women and single women in particular, I think is missing often from, from our knowledge. Uh, Dorothy Day is one of a handful that you talk about. It seems like we're missing a trick by not being aware of this hidden sisterhood that has existed over the centuries. 
how do you think we could go about redressing some of that? I love that. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, isn't it amazing just to realize that there have been so many women throughout the centuries who have lived uh, their lives for God in ways that are not just, you know, saintly, but relatable. Like they have their foibles and they struggle with their mental health and they face, you know, systems that are not there to support women or who, you know, put them in certain categories. And yet somehow, you know, God's love and goodness is reflected in their lives. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in my case as a Protestant, it's been reading uh, you know, this Catholic prayer book every day that every day they, they highlight a different saint. Um, and most, and a lot of them are women. Um, and I just, I just find that I learn something new each time, even if the stories are bizarre and strange, um, you know, about a saint who kissed leopards and healed people. You know, sometimes you read these stories and you're like, really, is this, is this really true? Or, you know, it doesn't seem relatable. And yet I think, you know, there's always a handful that connect with me in surprising ways. So I think it's just seeking out stories. Um, and, and if you come from a Christian tradition that doesn't have, you know, many of these stories, I think it's okay to do a little exploring and, and kind of dabble in traditions that are, you know, in the Catholic tradition, reading about Catholic saints or, or other traditions that have, that hold up different stories of people. Um, and I think too, you know, sometimes those stories can be you know, they can smooth out some of the human complexity. Um, and I think, you know, you read them with a grain of salt knowing these are real people, they're not perfect. Um, and the Catholics have this understanding around sainthood where, you know, to be a saint is, is I mean, there's the whole canonization process the Pope does, there's that side of sainthood, but also to be a saint is to be, you know, someone who is following God, right? And so realizing we're all called to that we're all called to join this communion um, and yeah I find it really encouraging and I think too realizing that um, there's so many ordinary saints all around us you know people in our neighborhoods who are just quietly faithful you know um, and it doesn't have to look like this big flashy you know kind of dramatic uh, kind of lifestyle for it to be something that can be useful or encouraging or beautiful um, yeah, which is helpful when you're in a life where, you know, it doesn't always feel like you're doing anything, right, that has any significance, realizing there's many ways to live, live faithfully. I, I mean, one of the things that you write about as well is that for women going to religious orders uh, in the Middle Ages, it was often to reclaim their lives and to have a degree of control over their um, existence. What do you think the appeal is now? For joining religious life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Again, as, not, as someone who isn't Catholic, I don't, you know, I'm not as steeped in traditions beyond just like this one order of visitation sisters. But um, I mean, I think that religious life is really waning, at least here in the United States. Um, the numbers of sisters who are joining new monastic communities has, is way, way, way down. Um, I think that that's different in different parts of the world. Um, but I think people who are joining monastic orders now are just attractive to a very different style of life. You know, I think that our modern culture and um, how disconnected people are, can be, how lonely it is. Um, and especially, you know, in, I talk a little bit about one of the sisters in my book who she had been a Protestant, had been a single woman missionary in Asia 
for most of her adult life and just felt like the Protestant church didn't know what to do with her as a single woman. Um, like when she would go to her, when she would be back in the United States and go to her church in Texas, um, the groups, the group was called spares and pairs or something like that, where, you know, it's like women who didn't have a partner were put in these certain boxes. And I think for her, um, you know, hers, her conversion story or her decision to become a Catholic sister, you know, has lots of different elements to it. So I don't want to oversimplify it. But I think one of the appeals is that, hey, there's a place for women to be a single in community and able to live kind of this more prophetic lifestyle, um, which can be you know, it's not impossible to do it in other ways, but I think it can be hard. I think it can be lonely. Um, I do think living in community is also hard and it can also be lonely, but there's a certain kind of honor and respect placed around that calling to, um, to be a sister or to be, a, um, you know, a brother or a priest or what have you, that I think at least in the Protestant, tra Protestant traditions that I've been part of, there just isn't any kind of equivalent for that. Yeah, so I guess I don't really know a whole lot about the reasons why certain women are choosing to become sisters beyond that one anecdote. But I do know that some of the more cloistered and conservative orders actually are seeing more of an uptick in new members joining than in some of the ones that are not um, as distinctive, like in terms of, you know, having to wear a habit or what have you. But again, I don't, I can't really speak to that too intelligently because I don't I don't know that much about it. You spent time in new monastic communities as as a married couple um, mm -hmm. early on in your marriage and you talk about how that presented significant challenges and perhaps a stripping away of innocence in terms of what community life looked like. You described the fatigue and undercurrents of pain, broken relationships, suffering uh, and you know quite a lot of intensity really in in your experiences and what you've witnessed around you what's your view of these kinds of places looking back especially compared to the longer term communities that you've now had a window into yeah i mean i i still have friends who live in new monastic communities um i'm still in a relationship with jubilee partners where my husband and i lived and there are people who, yeah, have been able to make a lifelong commitment to living, you know, either as a married couple or single or um, in community with other Christians. And I love what, you know, Clarence Jordan, Jordan said, who was the founder of the Koinonia Farm, which was one of the intentional communities, um, one of the first ones that kind of sprung up in Georgia in the 1940s was, you know, these are like demonstration plots for God's kingdom. They just show that another life is possible, another way of being a Christian is possible, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is called to then live in the demonstration plot. You know, it's, it's just one kind of prophetic model. And so I do think that God calls people to live in intentional communities and to live in new monastic communities. I think it's also just very hard <laughs> to, to maintain that life. And I think that that's why I realized, oh, these monastic traditions, they have some really amazing um, ways of understanding community that come from tradition that, you know, have been honed over centuries. There's didn't, there, there wouldn't be Benedictine monastic communities if the rule of St. Benedict was a bad rule, you know, they, it wouldn't have lasted for as long as it's lasted. So yeah, I think that it can be really hard to live in community and really hard to figure out how to develop a rule of life when you don't have a tradition to turn to as, as um, you know, 
people in Catholic orders often do. Um, but I still think that they're doing good work in the world. I just think that it's, it's hard. It's hard to, it's a special calling, I think, to be able to live in one long term. Uh, you talked personally about how you worried that you tried different outworkings of your faith. You call it denominational wandering. And you, you mentioned being worried that you're constantly in shallow soil. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's um, perhaps typical of a growing millennial experience, a particular generational thing? Definitely. Yeah, this is definitely something that I share with um, people in my age cohort. Um, I think some of those distinctions between different traditions within the Christian family are becoming less and less important to people um, around things like infant versus adult baptism or around even understandings of communion. I do, I do think theology matters. I do think that those understandings are important because what we believe and what we think, you know, reflects how we live. And yet I think there's this just desire for it to be more than just head knowledge and, you know, really wanting to see the church be the church. We're living through a time that is just, you know, so disorienting and so confusing. Um, it's hard to feel hopeful about the world. And if the church isn't part of doing acts of mercy or, or advocating, on behalf of those who are marginalized or who are really suffering um, it just seems like well what is it for you know what good what good is this institution doing in the world beyond you know telling us these rules around you know this is what it means to be baptized or what have you um, so yeah I do think that when you look at um, young adults and what would be attractive to them around joining a church or a faith community I think there's just this real hunger for an authentic faith, a faith that um, isn't just a set of beliefs, but is also a way of life. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the denominational wandering is, is very much um, part of just also just having greater access to, you know, the, you know having the internet and being able to um, explore and access communities that maybe you know, a couple decades ago, it would, would have been a lot harder to find someone from a different denomination to have a conversation with, or there were more stigmas maybe too around, oh, the Catholics XYZ, or oh, you know, Presbyterians, you know, whatever it might be. Those us versus them lines were just more, I don't know, they were just more black and white, I guess, than they are now. Is there an <laughs> inevitability about this kind of situation for uh, millennial generation in particular. I know it's not exclusively um, younger adults who obviously millennials now going up into, I think the late thirties and perhaps early forties. Mm -hmm. uh, those very clear directives that don't leave room for doubt that I think a lot of Christians are, are taught when they're young. Does, does questioning that lead to a dramatic break um, more often than not? Deconstruction that can be quite profound. Yeah, I guess I don't know what the statistics are. I mean, I think generally young adults are walking away from institutions of all kinds. And I think it's been because we're more aware now of the ways these institutions have failed. Um, and I think when you've been hurt by the church or hurt by any organization, there's a reckoning that it needs to, to happen, you know, around, well, why should I then go back and, re and put my faith and trust in this place that has not protected children or who that has not, 
you know, treated LGBTQ people with dignity or, you know, has certain kinds of beliefs or practices that have been harmful. And so I think that deconstruction can be a good thing because it it means that someone really cares, right? It means that they are looking at the world the way it actually is and saying, well, what does that mean? And so if you're willing to wrestle with your faith, if you're willing to ask a hard question, I don't think that's something that we need to be scared of, but I think that there needs to be, you know, lament, space for lament, space for uh, truth telling, and also um, for people of the church to have a sense of certain kind of humility of like, you know, people, I think we're just seeing a lot of, um, of people who are wounded or who have been wounded. Um, and so if the church can demonstrate in and through, you know, living out the gospel in, in prophetic ways by doing what Jesus said, you know, of looking to the least of these as being those who are the most honored and most uh, valued because of the way that the society treats them. If, if the church can model those things, then I think that there's a way back for people who are, who've gone through de deconstruction because there's, there is good in this tradition. There is good. And I think sometimes we just only hear the bad news. <laughs> we only hear about the, the heartbreak, but yeah, I mean, there's always a risk if people are, are deconstructing faith or, or asking hard questions. I just think that it's false though to say that, you know, Christianity isn't robust enough or that, that our theology can't handle that, you know, because I think that there are, not that all the answers are going to always be satisfying, but there is a long tradition of, you know, wrestling with God, of asking questions, of realizing things are more complicated than maybe we did when we were kids around some of these questions. And yet, there's enough that you can still claim to say, well, I know this part is true. So I can at least continue taking the next steps, you know? Um, and I think we need older generations to kind of model that. And I think that that's part of what attracted me to the sisters as well was here are these women who live faithfully for decades and decades and decades. There was the wisdom in their way of life that I was attracted to because it was stable and it was, you know, still willing to do good in the face of just what seems to be such a hard, dark world sometimes. Can you say a little bit about the nuns and nons group that you now facilitate, which is a, a, a new shape for your faith community in effect? Yeah, so I mean, I still attend a, a, a church on Sunday mornings with my kids, um, but I have also been part of a small group of people who meet once a month. And right now during the pandemic, we're meeting over Zoom, but it's a group of Catholic sisters, um, some of the sisters from the visitation order, but we have sisters from other orders as well in the Twin Cities area where I live who've joined us. And most of them are 50 and older. Um, and then we have a group of millennials, um, some who are religiously affiliated and some who are not. Um, but all of the millennials, I would say, are at least interested in talking about spirituality, are interested in kind of seeking out some kind of understanding of God or faith or mystery. And so Nuns and Nuns is a place where we come together to have conversation um, about faith in a way that is open and welcoming to anyone. Just, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to attend. So Nun, N-O-N-E, um, refers to people who say they don't have any religious affiliation. So 
I think it's groups like this are can be really important because they create a space for someone who is seeking um, maybe has some questions about faith and spirituality, but who would never just like walk into a church and say, yeah, let me join your young adult group, you know, because there's this, I guess, assumption that you would have to be a Christian to then participate in the life of a congregation. Um, so it's been a really wonderful place. I really love the conversations we have. I always learn something, whether it's in, you know, through the, what the wisdom the sisters have to share, or um, even what questions my, you know, fellow millennials are asking right now. How do we, and again, I think a lot of it comes out to, you know, how do we live a good holy life in this world? Um, and how do we stay engaged in fighting for justice in the communities where we live without burning out completely? Like what are the practices that can sustain um, engagement in the world. And that's where I think the sisters just have so much to offer in particular is, you know, they've, they've made this commitment to live out certain rhythms that are very countercultural, um, but have given them that kind of maturity and stability to continue being present to whoever knocks on their door. You know, I think that that's just remarkable. One of the things about uh, Christianity often is that it tends towards open confession and that could sometimes tip over into oversharing. Uh, and you've obviously written a very personal book and, and described a lot of what's gone on in your life and in your husband's life as well. How do you navigate a desire for privacy when, when things change, you know, in your own life or when you've lived previously in community settings where those boundaries are harder to maintain? what's what's that been like for you you have to be discerning i guess in in terms of what's for you and what is something that you can share with a broader audience i think in my case when josh first deconverted i i was just so hungry for these story for a story any story of someone's lived experience who had navigated something similar to what we were going through and i just didn't find anything that i really connected to and so you know i started writing just for myself, you know, just to process my own feelings. And I've got lots of journal entries that are just that, you know, they'll just always stay in a drawer. Um, but I think I realized that, you know, I'm someone who turns to books a lot. Like I love the library. I love reading. I've learned so much from books and I almost felt like, okay, well, this is my opportunity to contribute to this world of writing and books um, to share my story. Because I think, I think we need to, to talk about some of these issues more widely in the church. And um, if offering my story allows that to happen, then maybe that can help someone who is, who is navigating this dynamic. Um, and, you know, so Josh and I had to have a conversation about, you know, was that, how did he feel about that? Was he comfortable with me sharing our story? And I think for him, um, you know, to his credit, he's always been so supportive and, I think it's because you know he also has experienced a lot of loneliness in in being on his side of the story of what it's like to have grown up in the church and grown up as a missionary kid and suddenly be totally outside of that world and so yeah I think every person every writer has to ask that question for themselves you know what are you willing to you know is this something you're willing to do um, and you know, what's that line between vulnerability and oversharing and how do you also then protect the people in your life who you're writing about? In my case, um, with the different communities that I wrote about, I did 
you know, share chapters with people um, and said, hey, this is what, this is what I wrote. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, and the sisters, you know, were able to help me by reading a good portion of the manuscript as well. So it is always a risk, you know, it's always a risk when you put something out in the world. But um, I think that there's ways you can do it discerning and being accountable uh, to a community of people, um, having good readers, having a, a strong editor um, can help help you kind of navigate some of those questions. But I don't know, you'll have to ask me in 10 years if I'm, if I'm glad that I shared all this with this story with the public. But um, so far it's been, it's been a good experience. Uh, so you grew up and got married with quite set rules to follow. In effect, find a Christian spouse, don't have sex before you get married you know two plus two equals the perfect four everything will will work out as it should um and obviously your story is one of those things not coming to pass the way that you expected and i'm curious as your children uh, are getting older what would you advise them around marriage about life and expectations relationships and marriage and faith Ugh, this is a hard question because they're still so young. So it's, you know, it's not something I've thought a whole lot about. I, I, I hope that my kids realize that any relationship has to be rooted in that mutual respect for the other. And that I think, you know, that theology of, you know, two becoming one flesh with, you know, that is in our scriptures and is often cited in wedding vows and in marriage ceremonies that there's a beauty in that and there is a way in which in any kind of union you are becoming one right and yet you're still you <laughs> they're still them you both have your distinct thought life spiritual life you don't rely on that person to define you and i think that there's just some healthy ways that you can differentiate from your partner in your relationship that leads to a better and healthier union because you are respecting that that person is going to be and live and think differently than you are. And yet, if you can come together um, and nurture the things that you do share, you know, the common goals or values or virtues or whatever it might be, if you can have enough there to kind of ground you so that there is something in common and you can hold and respect uh, and they treat, they don't belittle, they don't put down the things that you care about and love and whether that's your faith, whether that's what you've chosen to do for vocation. I think it just, I'm hoping that it gives them an expanded idea of what it looks like to love someone because no, no matter who we're in relationship with, even if we share a faith or a cultural background or whatever it might be, I think sometimes you can make assumptions, you know, like, oh, well, we're both Christians. So, you know, like, I don't know, you have to work at it. I think a little bit harder when you don't share some of those things, but I guess I would really hope for them that any relationship that they would pursue marriage relationship or otherwise would be grounded in that, in that respect for the other. And also that they would take ownership then of their part of who it is that God has called them to be. Um, and to embrace their faith and marriage. I think sometimes there's this, not just in a Christian worldview, but just our society, our society says, you know, this person has got to be your be all and end all, your soulmate, right? And I think you do share a mutual love for one another. And yet one person's not gonna be able to meet all of your needs, right? So for me, 
I have had to find a community of Catholic sisters to help me with my faith. I've had to, you know, rely on other friends who, you know, share certain other interests with me that my husband doesn't share. And so I think realizing too, you can't put and pin all your hopes on one person to be the be all end all in your life. Um, that we need community. We need a diversity of people in our lives. We're relational beings. That's not meant to just pin all of our expectations on one other human being. Cause that's just too much, I think, for, for any, any one person to hold. And I do, I mean, I really do hope that they have a sense of God's love for them. Um, I hope that they find a relationship with Jesus that is, yeah, that inspires them to, to live authentically, to, to care about those in our culture and society that others have overlooked. Um, I hope that they find that too. And again, we'll see, right? Um, it's, it's a risk. And I think that that's one of the things that when I talk to mixed faith couples, you know, you can have a lot of fear around the things that you can't control, right? Around what does this mean for our kids if they're, they're not seeing this modeled for them where both parents are Christians. And yet there's no guarantee, even if you were both Christians, that your kids would, would believe or think or, or become who you would want them to be. Um, so it does take a lot of trust, right? And that goes back to that individual relationship that you have with God. It takes a lot of, yeah, a lot of trust, a lot of prayer and letting go of what's not yours to hold and what's not yours to control. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.